Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. This is an RNZ podcast. Hello, I'm Simon Morris. Back in the dim, dark past when shopping malls dominated downtown, Pride of Place and many of them went to the local video store. They were gigantic barns with shelves of titles as far as the eye could see. And not all timeless classics by any stretch of the imagination. Half of them you'd never heard of. Nobody had ever heard of them, in some cases not even the people who'd originally made them. Even after recutting, rebranding and retitling, they were irredeemably cursed with the tag straight to video. Somewhere in the future. A man from the past. Find McLeod and kill him. Is all that stands between life and death. But often, straight-to-video took pressure off the studios. The cinemas may have turned a movie down, but there was still a chance it could retrieve something from the wreckage. Rental fees nudged more than one apparent failure into the black, championed by video store nerds as cult classics. What we have yet, Shady Rest, is an Egyptian soul-sucker of some sort. Some kind of Bubba Hotep. You know, a mummy hiding out, feeding on the sleeping. Well, the video barns have mostly long gone now, though the nerds continue to push their favourites online and through niche streaming services like Shudder. Meanwhile, more populist streamers have taken over from video stores as somewhere to put films that can't get a cinema release. Netflix and Amazon, Disney Plus and Apple. Meg, it's Orson Welles. Of course it is. I think it's time we talked. Ready and willing to hunt a great white whale? Just call me Ahab. Tell the story you know. But there's a difference now. Back then, the films most likely to go straight to suburban blockbusters were routine action adventures starring no one you'd ever heard of, lacklustre romances featuring stars whose best work was behind them, failed debuts and monster mashups. Lawrence Wolsey, the master of movie horror, exterminates you with Matt. The story of Matt is based on scientific fact, on theories that have appeared in national magazines. The cinemas had their fair share of losers too, goodness knows, but generally you could see why they got made. They had familiar names attached, a fair amount of publicity, they were contenders. Well, things are different now. The serious contenders are more likely to turn up on Netflix or Amazon. Things have gotten out of hand with our friends. You've got to sit down. Everybody says so. No, I'm not sitting down. I can't do it. It's what it is. What it is. I know things. They don't know I know. I'm thinking of established A-list directors like Martin Scorsese, Spike Lee, Stephen Frears and Ron Howard. 
In fact, many movies only get a few cinema screenings so they can qualify for the Oscars. Films like Roma, Don't Look Up, Mank and Jane Campion's Power of the Dog, all made for Netflix. Open up the gate, let him out. You sure he's not ready? Go on, let him out. It's just a man eater. Meanwhile, general cinema releases are offered to some decidedly minor fare, made by people who've come from nowhere and are likely to return there soon. Well, this week sees three films up on the big screen that would have struggled to avoid going straight to Netflix just a few years ago. Looks like you ought to be practically dead before you get any assistance. If you sold all this junk, you might even have enough for a deposit. What we need right now is someone to come and look after her while I'm at work. There's a well-meaning Australian soap with a message called Ruby's Choice. There's Bullet Train, which wastes a perfectly good cast on a glorified live-action cartoon. And first, there's yet another Princess Die documentary, this one called The Princess. When you put a modern person in an ancient institution, they will be destroyed. The monarchy is in danger of too much publicity. The Princess is the latest retelling of the story of Charles and Diana, by my count about number 506, including last year's Spencer starring Kristen Stewart, Diana starring Naomi Watts, and of course the ongoing and, to me, definitive TV series The Crown. Now I would have thought these would have told us all anyone could possibly want to know about the story, from fairy tale beginnings to perfect tragedy ending. Could I ask you first, Your Royal Highness, what was your instant impression? Well, I remember thinking what a very jolly and amusing and, and attractive 16-year-old she was. I don't know what you thought of me. But... Pretty amazing. <laughs> <laughs> But no, I fail to account for the fact that for fans of the royal soap opera, there's never enough. Well, this version uses a similar technique to previous celebrity documentaries like Senna, about the late Formula One driver Ayrton Senna, and Amy, about the late pop star Amy Winehouse. Contemporary footage, no commentary or subsidiary interviews. Sweet, kind. The princess has been the best thing to happen to the monarchy in centuries. Did you get a chance to see her? Yes! Diana is very big news everywhere. She's got the common touch. And while much of this footage is familiar, you might say over-familiar, it does offer one thing that a drama can't. You actually see Diana. And there was nobody quite like the real thing. The prince realises that he's taking second place. By the way. <laughs> a hollow and tormented marriage are giving the British media and its public little else to talk about. It was Diana's elusiveness that captured people's attention as much as the fact that she'd married the heir to the throne. Was she really the sweet, not particularly bright ingenue she initially sold herself as? Was she the later, more confident pop star, keen to connect with the fans? Did she really turn into the bitter woman scorned, out for revenge? Just give me one question, right? Out. She's been pushed from the word go. It's the media that's causing the problems. Leave them alone. Lady Diana. As much as anything, the princess is about the people making those sorts of decisions. The media, the pundits, and of course, the public. 
The people's role in the build-up of Diana was critical, both driving up the market and then complaining about the people they employed to deliver their daily fix. She's been through the worst that can be thrown at her. I think we've got an unhealthy obsession. I think she's very close to being a monster. As the HBO-produced documentary continues, Diana herself starts to fade into the background, replaced by endless reactions to her from would-be experts, both professional and self-appointed. It's instructive to have our noses rubbed in what's essentially the birth of the whole social media phenomenon, long before the outlet for it had been invented. She has a sick mind. She likes to be with people. She likes to be bloody well watched. That's ridiculous. She has been humiliated. The worst aspect of the story was watching the media and the public, each egging the other on, turn on their one-time darling as the royal marriage fell apart. Whether they felt betrayed that the romance of the century didn't follow the script they demanded, or whether they were just a bit sick of the story, their behaviour was appalling. At what point British people say, I don't want to hear anymore? What's wrong with us as a country? Should this mean so much to us? But it was soap opera. It wasn't real, not like the births, deaths and marriages in people's own lives. So they felt free to say whatever they liked. And when the marriage was over and Princess Diana started to launch a comeback, the public mood turned again. She was now a survivor. Until, of course, the tragic end. They just can't sweep her under the it, carpet. It, 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 it's it's the so the it's to continue. The part everyone remembers of the story, Diana's shocking death in Paris and the huge outpouring of grief at her funeral, predictably gets more than its fair share of coverage in The Princess. But it got more than its fair share in real life too. The Princess is a safe, unexciting work. It certainly doesn't offer the insights of The Crown or The Queen starring Helen Mirren. Sometimes fiction is the only way to get into a true story. Look through there. You see, you see things going on inside it. Look, you see the faces. The people in there. Look at them. <laughs> Trapped. The most telling bit of the princess is right at the beginning. A bunch of English holidaymakers in Paris are trying out their new video camera in the car, just as they pass a crowd of paparazzi waiting for Diana to emerge from a restaurant. Five minutes later... Everything had changed. Blasé curiosity turned into morbid fascination. A fascination that's lasted 25 years now. Wow, wow, wow. Guys, look at these. Someone's out. They're very important. There's nothing quite as off-putting to the movie-going public as being told they ought to see something. Goodness knows they'll go and see something they're told they shouldn't watch. That's how curiosity works. But a story that you're assured, while it may not be particularly entertaining, is nevertheless good for you, is a hard sell. I want to look after my mum. Well, it looks like Nana might be staying for a while, so... Why don't you paint me something happy, Mum? 
There was a famous New Yorker cartoon of a well-meaning parent encouraging her offspring with "It's broccoli, darling," to which the child retorts, "I say it's spinach, and I say the hell with it." Which brings me to a piece of Australian spinach called Ruby's Choice. Why do we have some fun? I'm going to paint. I'm going to be some inspiration. It stars English Hollywood TV star Jane Seymour, or as the credits read, Jane Seymour OBE, which isn't a good start. I mean, Judy Dench and Michael Caine very rarely introduce themselves in the titles as Dame Judy and Sir Michael. I see the executive producer not only calls himself Sir Owen Glenn, but piles on the broccoli with of the Glenn Family Foundation. I haven't seen this one before. For her, it is new. The foundation is clearly connected to good works in the aged care field, which is what Ruby's Choice is selling. We meet Ruby, Jane OBE, going to the movies and not realizing she keeps seeing the same one. Did you spot her memories going? Okay, we can carry on then. I'm going to tell you three things. Memory test. Mm. Oh no, that's silly. Nothing wrong with my memory. <laughs> we can't leave her on her own. We meet Ruby's family, daughter Shaz and her husband Doug, who are concerned that Ruby's grasp on the plot is a bit tenuous. She seems to have forgotten, for instance, that her husband Frank died some years ago. Granddaughter Tash suggests telling her. So, why don't we try telling her the truth? Tash is about fourteen and possibly the real heroine of the story. She's certainly the narrator, at any rate. The narrative turns into a story when Ruby accidentally sets fire to her own apartment, and it seems she's let her insurance lapse. She keeps talking about your father like he's still alive. She's not losing it, but I might if you don't stop. I spoke to the fires. It started in the kitchen. The house insurance. I'll get your father to do all those things. Shit. Well, it's now obvious to Shaz that her mum is going to have to move into the family home. While Ruby's there, she can make herself useful, like look after Ollie the goldfish, say, and the pet parrot. I mean, what can possibly go wrong? Mum, could you help out round the house while we're at work? There you go. Oh my God, Ollie! Come on, what the hell? It's like she doesn't even think it's her fault. It's her age. Clearly, Ruby now needs looking after all the time, but permanent care is expensive, particularly as the number of house guests mounts up. Doug's recently divorced brother arrives on the scene with a son in tow, cluttering up both the home and the plot unnecessarily. The short solution is to get Tash to take time off school to look after Ruby. What about Tash? We could take her out of school. Are you actually like totally insane? I've been missing that. Missing what? Smile. So the story lumbers on in fits and starts. There are a lot of first timers in the making of Ruby's Choice, and the first thing you notice is that there's not much Jane Seymour can do with the character of Ruby. She looks lovely, and she alternates between oblivious and confused perfectly well, but she mostly goes where the plot pushes her. You can't do this. 
it's for her own good. This is this is my decision. Yeah, but didn't that. I do a good enough job looking after her? Yes, darling, of course you did. Meanwhile, the rest of the cast seem to spend half their time being the wacky Aussie family from the castle. What's with all Dad's junk in the garage? And the other half being Grandma's support team, hoping to find a magical place to put her, paid for by a magical pot of gold. Excuse me. Can, can I be part of this conversation? In the end, it's an improving message rather than a believable story. Despite the best efforts by Jane Seymour OBE and her game-supporting cast, the would-be broccoli of Ruby's choice remains, I'm sorry to say, spinach. And you know what you can do with that. Would it help if I tell you I love you? (laughs) Sometimes people learn that whole life's been a lie. Don't be daft. It's her life. It's Ruby's choice. It's Ruby's choice. If you've seen the trailer for Bullet Train starring Brad Pitt as a passenger on the titular Japanese Express, you may feel, as I did, this looks like it could be rather fun. OK, not particularly demanding fun, maybe, but the idea of a reluctant hitman called Ladybug doing one last job, particularly a hitman played by Brad Pitt, certainly has its attractions. Deer Creek International Business Solutions, how can I help you? I am ready. Well, that's great, Ladybug. Ladybug? Your new operational name. Oh, I see what you're doing. Ladybug's supposed to be lucky. Ha! Add to the mix a good cast, especially in the role of Ladybug's handler. Well, I can't really name the top star playing the handler, even if she is all over the trailer. In the film, she's mostly a faceless voice on the phone until the big reveal. So let's call her Zsa Zsa Gabor to avoid ruining the surprise at the end of Bullet Train. You don't have bad luck. Really? My bad luck is biblical. I'm not even trying to kill people and someone dies. I remember the suicidal bellboy. You drove him to the hospital. Hang in there, buddy! And he didn't die. I can tell you that Brad and Zsa Zsa have chemistry in spades and deserve a better film. Bullet Train is based on a Japanese book. It feels like a manga comic book with all its action set pieces, flashbacks and colourful character names. Well, that's certainly what's ended up on the screen, thanks to director David Leach. Talk to me. You're getting the new and improved me. Because if you put peace out in the world, you get peace back. I think you might be forgetting what you do for a living. David Leach is the auteur behind such successful but shallow fare as Deadpool 2, Atomic Blonde and John Wicks. His background is stunt work. In fact, I believe he first met Brad Pitt as his stunt double in the film Mr and Mrs Smith. Now, stunt work gives a director a healthy regard for action sequences. There are a lot of these in Bullet Train, if rather less for reasons to put them in. Take the gun. Every job I do, somebody dies. I'm not that guy anymore. Some conflicts require a gun. Anyway, Brad's last job is to get hold of a MacGuffin, in this case a silver briefcase, and deliver it to a client with the unpromising name of White Death. It is, he's assured by Zsa Zsa on the phone, a perfectly easy job. Hey, this is nice. 
Okay, what am I snatching and or grabbing? A briefcase. You said you wanted simple for your first job back. Doesn't get simpler. But in the first of many complications, it seems there's more than one person on board the bullet train who's been asked to find the briefcase. In the case of unlikely twins Tangerine and Lemon, Erin Taylor-Johnson and Brian Tyree Henry, they're also charged with bodyguarding the son of White Death. Lemon, mm. where's the briefcase? Oh, it's not shit. It was just there. We are right on the table. Everything that's ever happened to you... This is gonna sting, bitch! Oh. ...has led you here. A teenage girl who goes by Prince for some reason is also tooled up for a bit of mayhem along with at least four other briefcase claimers and assassins. One of them is a Mexican chap called The Wolf. Just stab me? So all these exotic characters are chasing each other up and down the speeding bullet train. They're also dodging a collection of cute cameo roles. That's right, Zsa Zsa's not the only surprise guest on the bullet train, as well as taking every opportunity not to get off at the required next stop. Get off at the next stop. Sounds so easy when you say it. One little prick from this, you know what happens? Yes! Your blood congeals, clogging your feet. I said yes! Ah, balls. And to add insult to idiocy, the story keeps stopping to flashback hours, weeks, at one stage 26 years, to explain coincidences that keep saving our hero's bacon. This itself is justified, well, sort of, by the idea that Bullet Train keeps riffing on the concept of luck. Is Brad Pitt's ladybug actually dogged by misfortune, or is he in fact the luckiest man alive? We'll ruin your life the way you ruin mine. Dude, I don't even know you. There's nothing simple about this job. Something else going on here. Yeah, I'm not the only one on this train looking for this case. Bullet Train manages to be both busy and a bit pointless. To coin a phrase, everything, everywhere, all at once. And I have to say I wouldn't care if it weren't such a waste of good talent. Notably Brad Pitt and the mysterious Jar Jar Gabor, who are far better than the sugar rush script and rickety direction deserve. We need to come up with a plan. I'm going to hurt people. What's happening to your face? Maybe there was a little head trauma? Maybe. i got to get off this train. The pair will certainly make money with Bullet Train, but I don't think they'll make many friends. After all, there's more to movies than selling popcorn. You guys have made enough money, surely. Isn't it time you got off trains like this and went back to work? Perhaps they should get in touch with Netflix or Amazon. Which brings this show to a close. I'm Simon Morris, and I hope you'll join me at the movies same time next week.